This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. Alongside this evening, once again, Eddie van der Waltz. Uh, Eddie, we'll do a market check in a moment. Are you ready for the Fed? We're two hours away. How can I not be ready? It's the only thing anybody's been talking about on the Markets Live team for the last week or so. <laughs> uh, are you are you a 75er or are you a 50er? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, definitely today is a, is a, is a 50er. I think that's baked in. Uh, I think the big question is really how many buckets is uh, is Powell going to sweat when they're asking the 75 basis point yeah. question? Because I think that is the, the main one that everybody wants answered. And I think he's going to have to walk a really, really tight rope there. Yeah, I think he basically is a position where he probably can't say that he'll never do it, but he's not quite ready to commit to it. Uh, and that will probably leave the Fed in a kind of difficult position and the market probably will take that as probably a little hawkish. We haven't fully factored 75 for the June meeting yet. Maybe that would be enough to tip things over. Quick check on the markets before we get to Charlie and get an update on the headlines. FTSE 100 finishing down by nine-tenths of 1% today. European equity markets basically sold off into the close today. Uh, so the FTSE was down by nine-tenths of 1%. The Cancarant in Paris down by 1.24%. We're going to talk about Airbus in just a moment. Uh, the DAX down by around half of 1% today. Uh, in terms of the bond markets, just pay attention to what is happening with the bond markets right now. Uh, the US 10-year uh, is just below 3%. Um, Germany is just below 1%. But what is interesting is that Italy, Italian yields continue to creep up day after day after day, and they're now trading just short of 200 basis points over Germany. Some really kind of in key lines coming up. The ECB is going to be quite worried about this. We'll talk about all of these stories throughout the show. Plenty coming up as we count you down to the Fed. Let's get a headline update now. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. The European Union plans to ban Russian crude oil over the next six months and refine fuels by the end of the year as part of a six-round of sanctions to increase pressure on Vladimir Putin over his invasion of Ukraine. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says, quote, this will be a complete import ban on all Russian oil, seaborne and pipeline crude and refined. Russia's war in Ukraine is nearing the 10-week mark. Having failed to achieve a quick victory, sources say Moscow is now focused on reinforcing both military and political control over territory taken so far. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon says the Federal Reserve should have moved quicker to raise rates as inflation hits the world economy. In an interview with Bloomberg Radio and Television in London, Dimon said, quote, we are a little late and the sooner they move, the the better Federal Reserve policymakers release their latest rate decision just under two hours from now with a 50 basis point increase considered to be a done deal. London's long-awaited crossrail project connecting the east and west of the city is set to open on May 24th following years of delays and cost overruns. Transport for London says the Elizabeth Line will initially operate as four separate railways and be fully connected by fall. Construction work began in 2009. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson back to you now in London. 
Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. Uh, lots to talk about this evening. I want to talk about, first of all, one of the subjects close to my heart, and that is Airbus. Uh, I've been a fond follower of this company for a long time. It's been out with its numbers within the last half hour. So I think while we're here, we should probably just spend a bit of time talking about what is happening here. Uh, I'm going to talk to Guillaume Forey, the CEO, a little bit later on this evening. Um, let's, get, let's get a take on what is happening here. First of all, I'm going to give you the numbers. Then we're going to get Charlotte Ryan's take on what they all mean. So sort of the, the, the headline number here is that the operating number, the adjusted EBIT, came through well ahead of expectations at $1.26 billion, uh, sorry, euros. Um, the, the estimate there was 708. However, the free cash flow line, I think, looks a little bit weak. Uh, they have upgraded their expectations in terms of the production rate for the 320. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, exactly how that is going to be achieved. So let's get Charlotte's take on all of this. Charlotte, first of all, the numbers. The EBIT looks good, but the cash flow doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, I think with that EBIT figure, um, it's important to note as well, we do understand that part of the the reason for the strong beat there is a one-off impact from some changes to pension accounting, which the company doesn't expect to be repeated again, and that's about 400 million euros. But yeah, free cash flow coming in a bit weaker than expected. I would say this isn't necessarily a surprise, given that the company is now in this ramp-up phase once again. They're back to making investment in their production lines. They're back to kind of pushing to increase production. And all of that does come with increased costs that are bound to impact on free cash flow. Charlotte, how much does the, 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 the latest results tell us about how demand for Airbus and its products has changed between now and before the pandemic? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it is still a little bit of an open question, which is kind of pointed to with some of the more cautious language that we see in this. Um, the CEO, Guillaume Forey, flagging this kind of complex risk profile for the rest of the year and that's in reference to the current situation in, in Russia, Ukraine but also um, China which is one of Airbus's main customers for jets and which has obviously been back in quite strict lockdowns um, but what you can see here is that they are moving ahead with this quite ambitious plan to increase production rates of their jets into 2025, which suggests that even though there's obviously been a COVID hit to demand, they are confident in that longer-term demand picture. Just out of curiosity, how much do they rely on Russia for um, materials? Russia is a huge metals exporter. Um, titanium, these kinds of products that are, that are widely used in aircraft production. Uh, are they still using Russia? Are they going to continue to use Russia? Yeah, so Airbus has confirmed that they do continue to get titanium supplies from Russia. The estimates are around 50% of their titanium comes from either Russia directly or, or through supply chain. And that is a departure from their rival Boeing strategy, which has stopped taking Russian titanium. So it does, it does leave the company quite exposed to a bit of risk there. Although, um, as far as they've said, they are protected in the kind of short to medium term due to some stockpiling. And they've said that they're working on securing alternative sources of supply for that titanium. But it is definitely, I think, an area of concern. 
Charlotte, we can't talk about uh, commodity prices in the, the 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 airline industry without talking about fuel costs. Fuel costs, of course, uh, going up significantly uh, along with oil prices, also partially as a result of Ukraine. How much is that changing the demand for the kind of aircrafts that people people uh, that 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 airlines want and how is that uh, how does, does does airbus fit into this are they making the right kinds of airplanes yeah so fuel cost is quite an interesting one when it comes to the aircraft manufacturers because it's not as direct an impact as what you see with the airlines where that's a pretty immediate increase in their cost what it does mean is that airlines may start to look towards more efficient aircraft which means newer models and airbus is pretty well placed in that area um it's one of the reasons that we've seen such high level of demand for their narrow body aircraft which they claim are more fuel efficient than the competition so in a roundabout way it could end up benefiting them but then the flip side of that is that if airlines are struggling they may seek to defer aircraft orders so it's it's one of those ones that can potentially go either way charlotte thank you very much indeed um i'm going to be talking as i say to guillaume for a little bit later on i'm sure charlotte will as well um to try and get an idea of of what is really happening here it's going to be fascinating to hear more about the supply chain story. Uh, up next, the EU imposing significant sanctions on Russian oil. We'll find out what the economic impact of that is going to be. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Today, we are addressing our dependency on Russian oil. And let's be clear, it will not be easy because some member states are strongly dependent on Russian oil, but we simply have to do it. So today we will propose to ban all Russian oil from Europe. This will be a complete import ban on all Russian oil seaborne and pipeline, crude and refined. Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, speaking a little bit earlier after the European Commission announced its plans the sixth round of sanctions um, that have been that have been announced uh, announced its plans to uh, effectively sanction and ban Russian oil. Um, what impact is this going to have? The the Kremlin was fairly quick to come out with a line basically saying that this is going to be an own goal for Europe. This is going to have a major economic impact on the European Union. And just for what for what it's worth, this still isn't a done deal yet. Hungary is saying that it will not support this plan and it does have a veto. Let's get a take on the uh, the economic story. Alexander Weber joins us now, European economy reporter. Alexander, is it too early to be able to quantify the impact that these sanctions will have, not on the Russian economy, but on the European economy? So an exact quantification is a bit difficult, but um, even the German economist minister has warned that it will have an impact. It will, um, for example, keep prices elevated, and that at a time when inflation is already at a record high. So it does have consequences for consumers who will pay more for gas, um, also for companies, and that will leave a mark on the European economy. It's too early to say exactly what it means for uh, growth. Um, It's less severe than an embargo against natural gas because you can more easily replace oil um, on global markets. Um, but it, yeah, it will have an impact on inflation. And that's a, that's a concern for policymakers for sure. 
Alexander, but can the ECB any do anything to address this? Is 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 there any point seeing this as a monetary event? Uh, because the only thing that the only way that the ECB can address this is by hiking rates so much that they 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 create demand destruction. No. Exactly, but the ECB is also um, concerned about the psychological effects on inflation. So if they the they might if they leave um, this unaddressed, it, it could curse workers and labor unions to demand higher wages, um, and also it um, increases the expectation of future price increases, and it can become uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you, um, that would be one channel through which a rate hike could work in this instance, that it just um, shows the population that the ECB is not ignoring the problem. And also you have to remember interest rates are at minus 0.5%, which is um, an odd look, to say the least, given inflation is almost 8%. It's almost as if we're heading into a stagflationary environment, and I'm assuming that any sort of gas embargo would certainly deliver that stagflationary environment. Alexander, how close are we to a recession within the Eurozone? So, um, so far, there's, it's not entirely clear. I mean, without a gas embargo, there's not many economists um, forecast a recession at the moment because the um, households still have large amounts of savings. There is this rebound from the pandemic, pent-up demand for travel uh, and so on. So there, there is a strong supporting factor. A gas embargo will probably change that picture because it would lead um, to physical shortages. There isn't just enough gas um, on the world market to replace Russian uh, supplies at the moment. So this would have much more severe consequences than an oil embargo, lead to shortages in production, uh, layoffs, and that would have uh, a much more severe consequence. So in Germany, for example, which is highly dependent on Russian gas supplies, that would almost certainly cause a recession. For the euro area as a whole, it's again less clear, um, but it would have very severe consequences. Alexander, we're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed for the updates. Uh, we'll wait and see exactly uh, what this final package does look like. As I say, Hungary uh, is at this point indicating that it may not support this oil embargo. Up next, we're going to hear from the CEO of Moderna. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Moderna, the vaccine maker, out with numbers a little bit earlier on. Um, the headline number's really strong. The top line revenue figure for Q1, just over $6 billion. The market was looking uh, for something close to four and a half. So a really strong set of numbers in this quarter. The stock initially went initially went up on the back of this, but then everybody looked at the guidance, and the guidance is basically unchanged. As a result of which, the stock's faded and is now actually trading a little negative right now. Earlier on, Kelly Lines and I caught up with Stefan Bansell and asked him about this disconnect between this incredibly strong Q1 and this kind of stable guidance, this more cautious guidance for the rest of the year. This is not a guidance, actually. It's our current signed APAs. What we have done for the pandemic is to be very precise to the market and investors to tell them exactly, as of today, what's the book of business. So as of today, the book of business that is signed is $21 billion for the year. And as we've said, you know, while there might be a bit of downside to that number on the COVAX front, as you know, COVAX 
uh, as way too many vaccines for the low-income countries, as you've heard from also other companies. There's a lot of upside to those numbers as well, because these numbers include zero sales from the U.S. government. And mm. uh, as you can imagine, there are going to be vaccine boosters available in the U.S. in the fall. There's currently no budget from Congress. So we're getting the company ready to go into the private market setup if we have to, if there is no funding from the U.S. government. So what do you expect, Stefan, in terms of contracts? Are you expecting more from the U.S. government this year? Well, if you look around the world, every developed country from Europe to Japan to Canada to Switzerland and many more have all ordered the Omicron-containing booster for the fall. The U.S. has not. And as you know, there's been no money appropriated in Congress. So I'm hoping and we're having discussions with the White House and HHS to be able to provide the U.S. government with vaccine. But we need to be ready as a company that if there is no funding, that we're able to provide to pharmacies and doctors and, and payers the vaccine in the U.S. to protect Americans. One area you haven't had orders from is, is China. China is experiencing significant levels of shutdown economically right now as a result of the Omicron wave that is sweeping across the country. What is your assessment of the situation, Stefan, in China? And what do you think the long-term trajectory there looks like? How are they going to find a way out of it? Yes, we're, of course, monitoring what's going on in China very closely. We have proposed uh, help through our vaccine to China. Uh, what we believe is, as you might remember, the data from the vaccines available there were not very strong back then for the old strain. And as we've seen with all the vaccines, there's a loss of efficacy with time as the virus mutates away from the first strain that appeared in Wuhan. And so uh, I think that until they, they really go into vaccination with higher efficacy vaccine, it's going to be very complicated. As you know, the virus, as it mutates, become more and more infectious. And so as we're seeing with Omicron, a lot of cases, and when you're going to see more and more variants coming, they're going to be just more and more infectious. They're not becoming less infectious. Stefan, if we could just talk about the way that the market has treated your company in the public markets to this point in the year, you're down 41% on a year-to-date basis. Where is the disconnect coming from between what you think you can del- deliver in the coming years and the question marks investors seem to have? Sure. I think people see us as a COVID-19 vaccine company, period. And because of the unknown about what will be the sales in 23 and 24 of COVID-19, uh, people uh, have been pessimistic about the company's prospect. I think a lot of people are missing that we have a platform where we're able to make very quickly a lot of drugs moving uh, forward into development. Uh, I, this morning on the conference call, what we shared is the last three vaccines, we have been able to move from starting the phase one to starting the phase three in 12 months. It takes several years usually for typical pharmaceutical companies. Why? Because they live in an analog world where every drug is different. In our case, it is 100% the same technology as our COVID vaccine that is approved. And so I think the market is missing that is the velocity and the breadth. Today, we have 30 free zero vaccines in development, 30. Uh, and then there's all the therapeutic that we talked about on our call this morning. We are waiting data in rare genetic disease. We are waiting for data later this year in cancer. And I think if you just do a sum of a part, all this is for free today. Okay, let's just, I just want to kind of pick up a little bit on what Kaylee asked you as well and come at it from a different angle. You spent circa 600 million on buybacks in the first quarter and the stock went down. Stefan, was that the best use of resources? I'm very happy with those buybacks and I believe that they're going to create in the mid to long term a lot of value for shareholders. As you might know, 
uh, being the founding CEO, I own a lot of stock uh, in the company. Uh, I'm very happy of those buybacks every day. I own a little bit more of Moderna, uh, which is great. Where the company is going based on what we just talked about is we have this platform that the market is not appreciating. So buying stock at this price, I think is going to create a lot of value for mid to long-term investors, not for people owning the stock for a few weeks, but for true investors, they'll be massively rewarded. Stefan Bansell, the CEO of Moderna, talking to Katie Lines and myself a little bit earlier on. number of things coming out of that conversation from, to my mind, Eddie. First of all, I, he talked about what is happening in China, and I don't think he sounded particularly positive. Um, mm. China doesn't have the mRNA technology that, that he's used so effectively to deal with uh, COVID in the West, in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere around the world. China just doesn't have that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder whether we we are going to come to a situation where a lot of the, 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 the countries that have relied on their own technology as future waves come along will yep. say, hang on a second, last time around didn't work for us. Maybe we're going to go to something new here. Uh, he definitely expects further waves, doesn't he? He's talking mm. about this this being an ongoing problem, which is for something me, I think we've, we've kind of got past here. Certainly, I, I don't feel like... I feel like COVID was yesterday's story. We're now talking about the war. We're talking about inflation. But but I, I do slightly in the back of my mind worry that COVID is coming back. I, I, he's definitely talking about the future a lot. And I think there's two things that, that, that jumped out at me. Number one is that he's talking about future waves and that, you know, he. I think most people will still want to get vaccinated. Many people will still want to get vaccinated because, you know, they are worried about long COVID and all those sorts of things. Yeah. At the same time, he wants to move the narrative on from the company being overly focused on just COVID. And he wants to look at other vaccines as well. So I think he is he is definitely looking beyond uh, the immediate fallout. Yeah, from COVID 30, 30 different vaccines. They all rely on the same technology. These aren't new products. They're just different iterations of the same product, which is fascinating how this mRNA technology uh, is going to be harnessed to treat all kinds of different things. At least that's a positive story, a silver lining that's come out of all of this. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable, 5.30 in the city of London. Um, U.S. markets largely becalmed now ahead of the Fed. Uh, we're around an hour and a half away from the decision. The expected decision is that we will see 50 basis points being delivered by the Federal Reserve, uh, a significant ramping up of rates in the United States, and potentially that will accompany uh, a QT program uh, that will only aid and augment that tightening of monetary conditions. Um, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Cameron Kreis is going to join us on the line ahead of that uh, announcement and the press conference, which will subsequently be delivered by Jerome Powell a little bit later on. As I say, markets largely becalmed. European markets actually edged lower into the close today. Uh, So the FTSE 100 down by around circa 1% uh, into that decision. But a lot of individual companies uh, are factored behind that. We did see oil catching a significant bid today. uh, So we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on as well. Uh, Let's get some headlines now. Then Eddie and I are going to kick this around with Cameron Kreis. Charlie Pellet, over to you. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. We have got less than 90 minutes to go ahead of that Fed decision. Our coverage kicks off 29 minutes from now right here on Bloomberg Radio. The European Union has added a ban on property transactions with Russian nationals to its sixth package of sanctions designed to raise pressure on Vladimir Putin. The European Commission's proposal will halt property deals with Russian 
citizens, residents, and entities. The ban is part of the EU's latest move to hit the Russian state, and oligarchs measures that will, for the first time, target Moscow's, Moscow's lucrative oil industry. The European Union has proposed a ban on Russian crude oil to be phased in over the next six months. Financial Conduct Authority staff were out waving placards and calling for better pay today while blasting Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley from a small sound system during the first strike in the Watchdog's nine-year history. Around 30 staff and union officials carried union flags and chanted, Exploitation ain't the way. Employees deserve better pay beneath the regulator's East London headquarters this morning. What might be passed off as a cheeky joke to a work colleague could end up getting you or your employer sued. That's according to new research from law firm GQ Littler, which found that the number of claims at UK employment tribunals relating to so-called banter in the workplace increased 45% from 67 cases in 2020 to almost 100 last year. The firm says the findings shine a light on the fine line between one person's perception of an offhand comment and what is actually discrimination or harassment with banter increasingly being used as a defense in legal proceedings to those kinds of allegations. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellets. No jokes around that story. Uh, okay. We are, as Charlie says, around 90 minutes, less than 90 minutes away uh, from the decision from the Fed. The expectation is that we're going to see 50 basis points uh, added to the, uh, the U.S. Fed funds rate. Uh, and we are going to see an announcement on QT, quantitative tightening, reducing the balance sheet. Are we going to get 50 or are we going to get 75? Or are there going to be hints that we could get a 75 basis point hike uh, next time around? Now, I obviously don't have an opinion on this, but if I did... I'd slightly be leaning on the hawkish side, certainly after today's ISM data, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, the headline number falling to 57.1 versus an estimate of 58.3. The, um, sorry, the prior number was 58.3, the estimate 58.5, and think about 50 years expansion. But when you get into the details, you understand uh, why I'm so uh, cautious. So the price is paid index. 84.6. That is a new fresh record. Uh, if you take a look at what is happening with the employment index, that absolutely cratered. Basically, companies are struggling to find the staff they need to deliver the services that people are asking for. Uh, this comes on the back of the JOLTS number we saw earlier on this week. Uh, the ADP number was a miss today as well, uh, which at the headline level probably speaks to a slowing economy. But again, once you dig into the details, actually speaks to an incredibly, incredibly tight labour market. So let's kick this around. Eddie's still with us. We're joined as well now by Cameron Kreis. Um, Cameron, let's get a take on where you sit with this. The data, to my mind, over the last few days, particularly when it comes to the labour market, have been unbelievably strong. What do you think? 50 or 75? Uh, well, today, 50. I mean, there's no real dispute about that, I don't, I don't think. Um, thereafter, I, you know, I think it's a tough one. Um, is he going to absolutely slam the door shut on 75? No, because why? You know why? Why give away that option for free? Um, will he suggest it's a base case? I'm a little skeptical. Um, you know, let's see what let's see what the 50s do before we sort of rush headlong into in the 75. They can still get the neutral quite easily by the end of the year, moving in 50 basis point increments. Uh, and there are starting to be some signs. Uh, that the underlying pace of activity is, is, is moderating, and not necessarily just for 
you know, dearth of labor reasons. The new orders figure uh, in that services ISM was the lowest in sort of 14 months. Um, so that's not exactly uh, an, an overwhelming endorsement uh, of, of a raging economy. Uh, Could you? Sorry, just to, just to jump in. Could you read that data though as a we we are we are capacity constrained, therefore we actually can't take orders because we can't fulfil them. Uh, I mean, it, it, charitably, I suppose. Um, you know, you're seeing the same thing on on, on the manufacturing side. Uh, you know, and I think I think also uh, the last GDP report, which was obviously driven by um, you know the negative growth, was obviously driven by inventories and and particularly. Um, net exports, but you did have an undershoot uh, vis-a-vis expectations on consumer spending. So uh, savings rate is at its lowest rate uh, of the cycle. So, well, yes, households still have quite a bit of cash on an aggregate basis. On a marginal basis, the cushion is a little less than it than it has been. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 listen, I, I think um, they are going to move and move aggressively, but there's an awful lot in the price. Um, there's an awful lot in the price. I mean, we're, we're essentially pricing a 40% chance of 75 um, next next uh, next month in, in June. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle to see why that needs to become a, a base case, um, right. a, a base case scenario. Cab, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it's 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 key for him here to to kind of walk that tightrope between not saying, you know, not hinting too much about 75, but not disappointing the markets um, either, because clearly there are some who are hoping for a more aggressive Fed going forward. But I actually want to ask you a little bit more about the dollar. Um, we, we've seen we've seen a, 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 a much stronger dollar over the last month or so. Is that is that turning into a risk factor for growth, or is it actually benefiting the Fed in in, in dampening infla- uh, inflation? Well, I mean, I think you could argue a little bit of both, uh, right? Because uh, a stronger dollar certainly increases America's purchasing power uh, vis-a-vis goods, you know, goods manufactured in the rest of the world, um, and you yeah, what you saw with an absolutely ludicrous trade trade deficit um, reported this morning, uh, which. Okay, it was expected to blow out, and it just blew out a little more than expected. But, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when <laughs> a trade deficit that went up by $20 billion a month was bad for the dollar. You know, more generally, uh, you know, Eddie's exactly right. The broad trade-weighted <laughs> index um, uh, for the dollar is up nearly 4% uh, this month. Um, or excuse, not this month, since the beginning of uh, since the beginning of April, uh, and you know uh, a, a monetary conditions index, which no one uses anymore. But back in the good old days, you know, kind of a rule of thumb was that there was sort of a four or five to one ratio. Yeah. So a four percent move in the in the dollar would represent sort of eighty to one hundred basis points of, of of additional tightening. So that would argue um, that in fact you would need less uh, overall rate moves. Uh, or that at least that the dollar is taking some of the burden, which again would argue okay. um, for a bit less, uh, you know, for not necessarily needing to do 75 next time. Are they not doing 75 because they're also doing QT? Well, they would argue that that's a separate issue. That the, okay. uh, In reality, the issue. is it a separate issue? Because um, it's still tightening. 
Well, in the, in, in the very near term, it's not going to have that much of an impact. Um, further out, uh, you know, I think the QT as tightening is a 2023 story, not a 2022 story. Uh, the data certainly suggests that there are uh, a reasonable lag between uh, the evolution of the Fed's balance sheet in terms of the rate of change uh, on a year-on-year basis and the subsequent uh, change in, say, the, say the equity market. Uh, the level of, of bank reserves, which did fall quite sharply a couple of weeks ago because of tax payments, is still large enough that there isn't really much of an impact uh, on the Fed funds rate, the effective Fed funds rate, and where that trades within the corridor. Uh, you're you're going to see bank reserves fall by roughly a trillion, maybe a little more than a trillion dollars, um, before you can say the QT is going to bite in the sense of the Fed funds tra- uh, rate trading at the top of the, okay. uh, the Fed's target band, uh, or, or at least at the uh, interest on reserve balances, uh, which is if it trades above there, then you can say that the Fed's kind of losing control um, of, the, of the mechanism. So I think we're probably close to a year away from that happening. But that being said, you know, the consensus is that QT kind of goes into 2025, and I'm a huge seller of that as a, as a, as a time frame. Uh, it would not surprise me at all if it ends next year. Do we have any idea of uh, even if even if it even if it is you know slightly lo- further out the curve even if we are talking about 2023-2025, do we have any idea of of how many basis points of tightening they're actually delivering via quantitative tightening? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a no. I think is the is the short answer. <laughs> I mean, you see various analyses, but the correlation. Um, of shifts in the balance sheet with shifts in yields is actually pretty negligible um, over over time because, the, I, I, to my mind, the the most visceral impact of the balance sheet is via signaling rather than some sort of mechanistic um, mechanistic uh, framework. I.e., yep. they're signaling they're signaling that they want to tighten. Um, and you know, look. Uh, it, Signaling that they want to tighten has flattened the curve pretty dramatically. So you could argue that all else being equal, it actually takes takes some of the yield out of uh, of certainly the long end of the curve because it's signaling that they're going to get to ne- to neutral stroke right. restrictive restrictive policy levels sooner than than we thought six months ago. And that Cameron. all else being equal is 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 bullish uh, um, for the back end of the curve. I just, I just want to address the sort of psychology of all of this. Do you think the, the moment the Fed is clearly being pushed by the market, does the Fed need to get ahead of the market? I, I'm, I keep coming back to this idea that they need to be more hawkish than the market is signaling, which is in, becoming increasingly difficult. But at the moment, it feels like the market is out front and the Fed is following. Does the how Fed need that, to reverse that, that order? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but how is that any different from, um, from the way it was in, say, 2019? When no, I don't think Fed, it is, but, the, but I think the Fed, the Fed, Fed really has made a mistake. But, but the Fed this time has made a mistake. And and I'm wondering whether it needs to reassert its control over the narrative, rather well, than the, continuing to let the market push it around. You know, are, are you? Uh, you know, I, I'm mindful of, of of drawing on my classical education and some of the Greek myths of you know, sort of the <laughs> Sisyphus and Tantalus. You've done it in, now. You know, yeah. in, in you know, in I'm Asia. more of an Aristophanes fan, but anyway, we'll go there. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, the more the more you eat, the hungrier you get. Uh, that was Tantalus. You know, and Sisyphus, yep. pull, you know, he pushes the rock up the mountain, and then it, it just rolls back down again. Um, so, you know, I think there's an, there's an element of danger there. It's kind of the more, you know, the more you sort of exceed, or the more you try to get ahead of the market, well, the market just races ahead of you uh, 
that much that much further. Um, and maybe it's you know. Well, but unless you this time around go, we're going to do seventy five. Well, I mean, well, that would be a shock. Um, I'm not sure if they're quite at the point where they want to actually deliver a shock, uh, because delivering shocks aren't the stuff of which soft landings are made. And, they, you know, they still claim that they can deliver that, but it's kind of like putting, in, you know, an Airbus 380 on a postage stamp. You know, you've got to be pretty, exactly. pretty adept. I'm tempted to start talking about football and Chelsea again, just that I've got, you know, some, some sort of grounding. We're not on, on classical uh, educations anymore. But, but Cameron, uh, on, the, on the Fed put... You've got 40 seconds to do this, so speak fast. <laughs> Cameron, is there, is, there, is there no longer a Fed put in the market? Uh, well, A, we should be talking about West Ham, not Chelsea. Uh, let's avoid <laughs> sanctions. Uh, uh, and two, well, there probably is, but it's struck so low that you can't see it. And, you know, the argument is that in fact, they've, uh, you know, there's actually a Fed call uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that they're long and that, uh, which kind of prevents the market from going up too yeah. much. I mean, they've they basically I, said they want financial conditions to tighten. Yeah, uh, the financial conditions have certainly tightened, tightened. The market has gone down significantly and there's not even a, a, a whisper from the Fed that they're concerned about this. Cam, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So we've got the Fed in about an hour's time. But tomorrow we also get another major central bank reporting. And of course, that is the Bank of England. What should we expect from the Bank of England? Well, here with a look ahead is Philip Aldrich uh, to give us a sense of what we should expect uh, from Mr Bailey and co. So the Fed is debating 50 basis points. What should we be thinking about from the BOE tomorrow? 25 seems to be the expectation. Any chance we get 50? It seems to be off the table. They, they did tee up a 50 a couple of uh, meetings back, um, but then they, then they sort of rode back in the subsequent meeting to then go back to a 50 um, would look slightly bizarre in terms of well, sort of communications and signaling. The, the bank doesn't have the greatest of, of track record in, in, in communication recently and flip-flopping does seem to be kind of the, the form. Therefore, should we completely exclude it? I, well, it's, it's how you read it, isn't it? I mean, if, because, <laughs> because they've got a bit of a reputation for, flip, flip, for flip-flopping, they would probably want to eradicate that reputation rather than uh, reinforce it. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, a 25 basis point hike is um, is, is sort of baked in now, so that, that seems to be on the cards and uh, seems to be the, the, the most likely outcome. And, of course, but what that does do is it then it tees up what happens to the uh, uh quantitative easing asset yep. sales because they because they talk about active sales at one percent yep. no, considering the process of active sales at one percent well but they, as you say i mean they, they they they've surprised the markets before and they are they they're very much a function at the boe today of, of tomorrow of, of what the fed does today right if the fed comes out at sounding more aggressive will that affect in any way shape or form what the boe does tomorrow um, you know, plausibly, I, I mean, I think that, you know, if, if they weren't on a uh, sort of relatively aggressive trajectory for rate rises, um, maybe it would, you know, it would sharpen that focus. But, uh, but you know, they've been, they're, they're into their fourth, if they raise this one, there'll be a fourth rate rise in a row. They were the first central bank to, to get going. Yeah. I, I would, you know, I think they don't need to feel like they're playing catch up. 
Do you think they are going to be the first central bank, as you say, they were the first major central bank to start hiking. Are they going to be the first central bank to start admitting that growth is a bit of a problem? They've already started to hint at that. The, obviously, the forecast tomorrow will have the, the GDP forecast in there. Yep. And we've already had downgrades at, from the IMF. Um, and uh, we're going to see, you're inevitably going to see a downgrade. Uh, the cost of living crisis is definitely taking its toll in, on the economy. And so, uh, you know, the, the case is, the question is, do they... This could be quite an interesting aspect. Obviously, the the annual forecast will still look relatively punchy in normal terms. But um, what may happen is it's the back two quarters of the year or the middle two quarters of the year where we may get literally two quarters of uh, contraction. um, uh, And that would technically be a recession. So I imagine that'll be something which might get played around with um, among the press corps tomorrow if it's not actually in the in the documents. But how much is how much can we can we take 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 the, the case of the UK and see it as a read across to other economies? You're saying they're first and all of and 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 they they the first to worry about among the first to worry about growth uh, explicitly. But how much of these factors are UK specific and related to Brexit and therefore should be discounted when we when we consider other economies? I I don't think much of what we're seeing now is Brexit. The Bank of England was actually quite quite uh, was it the I think, it, I think it was the Bank of England. Um, it might have been the Office of Budget Responsibility, but they were quite specific um, that all of the uh, Brexit um, estimates that they had put into their economy forecasts were not were unchanged. Yes, it was the it was the OBR at the uh, spring statement. Um, they uh, so a, a lot of the a lot of the anticipated Brexit effect is already built in. You know, what we're getting now is the the su- supply shock. Well, the, the IMF uh, put it quite well. They, they said that the UK have got the worst of both worlds. They've got the worst of the energy shock in Europe and they've got the worst of the labour market shock, the tightness of the labour market in America. And you've got that combination in the UK and that's what's kind of playing out here in terms of that sort of particular inflation effect. Yep. It's not, it's, I think the, the Brexit uh, stuff is a, is, a, is a factor, but it shouldn't be overplayed. What, what, int- what inflation rate do you think the Bank of England will be comfortable with? <laughs> well, 2%, of course. But, yeah. Okay, but, ideally. But but realistically, is that kind of... If you get to 2%, are you going to cause a recession? Yeah. Oh, I see. In terms of, like, where would they... What, what, what do they want to push it down to? I mean, conceivably, tomorrow, we might actually, we might see a, a, a forecast of double-digit um, inflation, which would be the right. first in 40 years. Um uh, where would they be comfortable with? You know, if you look back to 2007 and 2011, we had inflation of five and 5.2%. Yeah. And at that point, they were saying, we're going to look through this, we're gonna right? We're going to look through this. Um, so where would they be comfortable? I mean, history says that, you know, at around 5%, they'd probably say, we can we can, we can So look could they this. back off at that point? So the, the worry is that if you over-tighten, you cause a recession, you yeah. break something. So could they say, you know what? And maybe this is just a tacit conversation. This is the sort of implied that we, we we can get we don't have to get inflation to target in order to start backing off. Yeah, um, the uh, the thing is their forecasts are quite aggressive. They see they see inflation, inflation coming down, down yeah. very very fast. Right. So there so uh, you know you get the you get this big peak and then the, effectively the inflation destroys future growth. Which yep. then brings inflation plummeting down effectively in, by 2023, 24, quite you know far below the two percent target. Yeah. So so there so I don't think you know I don't think they're going to be saying a five percent is tolerable. I think they're just they'll look out to two years and they're going to say growth is going to uh, inflation fact it kind of does some of the work for them in terms of fighting inflation yep. because it kills uh, an element of you know, consumer demand. Yeah. 
Are we seeing the same sort of wage pressure coming through in the UK as we do in, in, in other developed economies? There, yeah, there is. There, there is. It's quite there is quite strong wage pressures coming through here. The, the labor market is is very tight. We have these huge shortages. Um, the private sector is not holding back the dam as much as the public sector is at the moment. There are these yeah. pay review body discussions going on with government between government and you know the, the public sector workers. Um, that's going to be really interesting. Um, the the teachers got a four percent pay rise, which is you know quite a chunky pay cut in real terms. Um, the private sector seems between five. You know, it looks like five percent settlements, which is, it's obviously in real terms not not a good place to be, but in nominal terms, it's, those are pretty chunky pay rises. The governor did ask us all to show some wage restraint, which went down very very well. <laughs> Philip Aldrich, thank you very much indeed. Eddie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, the Fed is coming up. The Bank of England is coming up. There's some great coverage on the Bloomberg terminal. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> 